Well, hello and welcome to Paul Martin's Audiobooks and Ideas. In my podcast today, I'm talking about Muhammad, the founder of Islam, the world's second largest religion. Did Muhammad exist? This is a very controversial uh, topic that's risen up, but it's actually been around for the last couple of hundred years since the 19th century when many people have been critically looking at Islam. Muhammad is supposed to be the greatest man who ever lived. There was a 1977 epic film made about him called The Message. There's just one problem. This film didn't even have Muhammad in the movie. It simply had people talking to the camera and playing funny organ music because they did not want to have Muhammad's voice or face depicted in the film. In Pakistan, they have the death penalty for anyone who insults Muhammad. And Muslims, every time they mention his name, are required to say, peace be upon him. Muslim countries frequently suffer from violent coups or revolutions in which um, tolerant secular governments are overthrown by Sharia draconian laws. And it leads to stonings, beheadings, amputations, the rape of women, where they can get stoned to death if they can't prove it was non-consensual, and the persecution of religious minorities and the loss of civil rights for atheists or religious minorities, terrorism, massacres, traumatization and utter misery. <clears throat> and after a few years or a few decades the Muslim people get sick and tired of Sharia law and they overthrow it. And then they start to feel guilty because they're Muslims and they eventually end up installing Sharia law. And it goes through the same cycle. They suffer horrific human rights abuses. They get tired of it, then they overthrow it. But what if Muhammad had never existed? Did he actually exist? And if he existed, what is the evidence? There are people claiming that Muhammad never existed. I'm going to have a very tough, critical look at the evidence for and against. And you, the listener, can decide for yourself. And I'm going to ask a bunch of questions. And I'd like you, the listener, to also ask yourself these questions as we go through the historical information to determine if Islam and Muhammad is historically true, or is it an unreliable myth? So we have to ask ourselves these questions. Was Mecca the place where Islam started? What do primary sources of the 7th century say about Islam and Muhammad? What do they tell us about the 7th century and the Arabs? When were the Islamic sources written down? Are they historically reliable and believable? Did Islam 
or the Arab Empire go through apocalyptic violence and civil war before the Quran and Hadiths were recorded? Did different groups and factions of proto-Muslims blot each other out? Is the Quran a perfectly preserved tablet from a plate in heaven, as the Quran says it is? Or is it a book that has not been perfectly preserved? And what can we be certain of regarding the Arabs and their empire from the 7th to 8th centuries AD? Well, Muhammad, we're told, was born around roughly 570 AD and he died around 632 AD, roughly at the age of 62. He became a prophet at the age of 40, in which would be 610 AD, and spent the last 22 years of his life as a prophet. And then the Quran was perfectly preserved by the Caliph Uthman about 19 years after Muhammad's death, which would be about 651 AD. Well, let's have a look then at the evidence, what Muslims' sources say and when they were written. Well, the Gospels, for example, in the New Testament were written by eyewitnesses who knew Jesus and they were written within 20 to 30 years after the time of Christ. But there's nothing about Muhammad that was written down by any of the eyewitnesses. We have a written extant biography of Muhammad. It was written by Ibn Hisham, who died in 834 AD. So he lived about 200 years after the time of Muhammad. We have Bukhari, who lived in Central Asia, and he died in 870 AD. And Sahih Muslim, who died in 875 AD. Akhtamidi, who died in 884 AD. Abu Dawood, who died in 899 AD. And An Nisai, who died in 915 AD. These were the Hadith collectors. They lived 200 to 300 years after the time of Muhammad. And there was the history book of Al-Tabari, which was also a biography of Muhammad. It was written down in 923 AD. So it was written about 300 years after the time of Muhammad. The earliest known mention is in the 7th century, but the references made to Muhammad are not very reliable. Are the, is this information written about Muhammad reliable and believable? So we have the Abbasids who in 749 AD wrote a biography of Muhammad. But that was denounced by 
A later biographer, Ibn Hisham, as unreliable. The Hadith was collected, it's a collection of 7,397 Hadiths out of hundreds of thousands of Hadiths. It's roughly 2% of the available material. So if you're going to write a history and you erase 98% of what is available and declare 2% of it to be reliable, it's not very trustworthy, my friends. So we have a selective erased history that's been rewritten to suit a certain narrative. And all these early Islamic writers come from places that were a massive distance from Mecca. From Baghdad, Cairo, and Bukhari came from what is Uzbekistan today. So the Quran also was not written uh, down 22 years or so in the 7th century, but it evolved from 50 to 300 years after the event. J. Smith is a great scholar on Islam, and he asks these questions. He has a, a website, a YouTube channel called Fander Films. It's P-F-A-N-D-E-R, Fander Films, with a silent P at the start. And he asks the question, why did it take so long to write about Mecca? He says, the Arabs controlled Basra, Baghdad, Damascus, Jerusalem, Cairo by 642 AD. Were they literate? And the answer is no. Where did the 9th century biographers who wrote about Muhammad, where did they get their material? And can it be trusted if it's so late, 200 to 300 years after the alleged event? And he asks, shouldn't we go to the 7th century? And that's exactly where we're going to go to. So, um, first we have the Dome of the Rock. Is the Dome of the Rock evidence for Muhammad's existence? And the answer is no, because it was built by the Caliph Abu Malik in 691 AD. It has Byzantine architecture. The myth is that Muhammad rode a flying horse to heaven when Moses helped him bargain with God to have prayer five times a day instead of 50 times a day. So what kind of a God decrees 50 prayers a day and then changes his mind after mortal men bargain with him? It doesn't fit with the Islamic concept of who God is. The mosque was supposedly built to commemorate this. But here's the thing, it was built in 691 AD. The Al-Aqsa Mosque has been destroyed and rebuilt 11 times. The writing on the mosque was done in 1876. The inner and outer ambulatory are the only original parts of the building. The writing in these parts has no reference whatsoever to a winged horse or to Muhammad. The only attacks the divinity of Christ. The Shahadar on the Dome of the Rock says, 
that the Blessed One, or Muhammad, that's what the word means, is most likely referring either to Jesus or to, Ab, or to Abdul Malik. But we'll look more at that later. Um, so, this is what Muslims refer to as the Knight of Power, where he rode on a flying horse. Um, and this supposedly happened in 621 AD. And this was most likely because the Quran wasn't written until after 691 to 709 AD. The Quran chapter 17 verse 1 says, Holy is he who carried his servant by night from the holy mosque to the further mosque, whose surroundings we have blessed that we might show him some of our signs. Next we get to um, original sources that were written in the 7th century AD. And we're going to have a look at what they tell us about the 7th century. The first one I'm going to look at is Doctrina Jacobi. It's written between 635 to 640 AD. And it mentions a living prophet invading Jerusalem. Now, according to Muslim tradition, Muhammad was long dead, dying um, years before the invasion of Jerusalem. But this original document, written in the 7th century, mentions a living prophet invading Jerusalem. And he, it says he was not proclaiming a new religion, but was announcing the advent of the Anointed One, the Christ, who was to come. There is no mention at all to Muslims, Islam or Muhammad. Only to Saracens and Hajarines. And it says that the Arab conquerors appear to have been Aryans, who denied the Trinity and Divinity of Christ, and the Arab Empire, it seems, found itself in need of an ideological, theological legitimization. The word Muhammad simply means the praised one, and it would seem that this Arab Empire that exploded onto the world needed to create for itself a religion. They would have needed a distant prophetic figure who had to be an Arab, he had to be a warrior, he had to be a political leader, he had to be an inhabitant of Central Asia, uh, sorry, Central Arabia, and a prophet of God with a special status. So they call him the seal of the prophets. <clears throat> the next source we come to is Thomas the Presbyter. In the 7th century, he wrote a book called The Chronicle of 640. So it was a book written in 640 AD by a Syriac Orthodox priest in Mesopotamia. The manuscript was copied in 724 AD. It gives biblical history, history from Eusebius to Emperor Heraclius. And he was an eyewitness account of the Arab conquest of the time. 
He says there was a battle between the Romans and the Tayaya of Muhammad in Palestine. The Tayaya was an Arab tribe. And it says that the Arabs killed 4,000 poor villagers in Palestine, Jews, Christians and Samaritans. And it says the Arabs ravaged the whole region. The Arabs invaded the whole of Syria and went down to Persia and conquered it. The Arabs climbed the mountain of Mardin and killed many monks there in Kedar and Benata. So there's no mention whatsoever that's made of Muslims or Islam. It says that the, the, the Tayaya of Muhammad, which may mean someone called Muhammad, or it might mean they were warring in the name of the praised one, whoever that is. Then we look at the chaotic beginnings of this Arab Empire. So the 7th century documents don't seem to say anything about um, Islam or the Quran or Muhammad. They simply mention this Arab Empire coming out of nowhere. So um, the Muslims claim that Mecca is the oldest city in existence, that Adam and Eve lived there, that Abraham lived there. But Mecca had no history prior to Muhammad. And the Quran in chapter 48, verse 24, and chapter 3, verse 96, refers to the valley of Mecca. Yet Mecca is not a valley. The only thing we know about Mecca in the Quran is it tells us that it's a valley, and yet we know that it is not a valley. In um, Petra, which is an uh, ancient city in Jordan, there is a Nabataean temple to the goddess Alat in southern Jordan. And if you change one single dot in, of the vowels in the original Arabic, you change Mecca to Becca. And the Valley of Becca is mentioned in the Bible. There's a great documentary you can watch called The Sacred City. Is Mecca really the birthplace of Islam? It goes for about 85 minutes. It's on YouTube and other platforms. And the most ancient... Um, mosques in the world that are dated from 627 to 724 AD all point to Petra as the as the direction to pray towards and Petra is in fact a valley they all converge uh, these early mosques on Petra not Mecca not Jerusalem and then they started pointing to Mecca about 109 years after Islam supposedly began. The earliest known mosque facing Mecca is found in Pakistan and it dates to about 732 AD.
Um, so, Mecca, um, or Petra rather, the place where it originally was, uh, had a lot of wars between the early Muslims. Petra has a temple to the winged lions, to Al-Uzza, a goddess, that's mentioned in the Quran. And there's a cave facing, um, supposed to be facing Mecca, but there's no such um, cave that faces Mecca. In Petra, there's a cave with a crescent on it that faces Petra. And there are large square stones in Petra called the Jinn Rocks. And there was a second Islamic civil war in which Ibn Zubair moved the Black Rock. He was the governor of Petra, or what was called Mecca. He says Damascus was then declared the capital of the Caliphate. Ibn Zubair rebelled in 683 AD, said he was the Caliph. The Umayyads attacked him. Al-Tabari, chapter 20, verse uh, 537, says that Ibn Zubair demolished the Kaaba. Then the Damascus Caliph died. Troops went from Mecca to Damascus within 40 days. Now that's possible if you're going from Damascus to Petra, but it's not possible to go to Mecca, which is 1,400 kilometres from Damascus, whereas Petra is 435 kilometres. Al-Tabari is also missing the year 70 of Islamic history. And it talks about masses of horses and camels who were amassed at the holy city. What happened? Was the black rock taken to safety south of Damascus? And after this time, the Abbasids started constructing mosques facing Mecca. And they adopted Ibn Zubair's Qibla. And then in 713 AD, Petra was destroyed by an earthquake and subsequent floods. It was abandoned, then forgotten. Then the Umayyad dynasty of the Arabs was overthrown by the Abbasids who rewrote history. So the Abbasids were the ones who demolished about 98% of the Hadith. So could Islam have been reinvented and changed from something else? Well, let's have a look at the events in the first century of this Islamic history. We have what was called the first fitna, meaning a Muslim civil war, from 656 to 661 AD. There was a war between uh, some Caliph Ali and Mu'awiyah. There was mass strife and sedition. We're told that Aisha, the child bride of Muhammad, led forces against Ali. And it, it led to the overthrow of the Rashidun Caliphate and the establishment of the Umayyad Caliphate. 
And the Rashidun Caliphate had coins which had Persian Zoroastrian symbols on them. If these people, these Arabs were Muslims, why would they uh, mint coins with a religion they disagreed with? Moving on. Roughly 20 years later, there was the second fitna between four warring factions. Now, to have four warring factions suggests complete chaos and disagreement, and that leads to an original faction following the original teachings possibly being wiped out. And the Umayyad Caliphate was a racist Arab empire that treated non-Arabs as second-class citizens. And it ended with an Umayyad victory by Abd al-Malik, who, with two nephews, his dynasty lasted until the Abbasid Revolution in 750 AD. And the religious groups that later became the Shiites and Sunnis were derived from this conflict. Now, if these Umayyads were really Muslims, they would have believed in what Islam claims is racial equality. Instead, they were just an Arab racist empire that was victorious. So even if the original Islamic religion had really existed, we would have to conclude that its teachings were wiped out or maybe it never did exist, and the Umayyads were simply part of this racist Arab empire that rose up. Moving on further, we come to either 744 or 747 AD until 750 AD, the third fitna. The Umayyads were defeated and replaced by the Abbasids. In 767 AD, the first biography was written about some prophet called Muhammad who lived 130 years earlier. But this book is no longer extant. It was only quoted by another biographer about 60 years later, in which he highly discredits the original book. So it makes us question how reliable this biography was the fact that it was discredited by later people and the fact that it was written 130 years after the fact by a revolutionary group that overthrew another revolutionary faction. Then there was the fourth fitna around 811 to 813 AD until 819 AD. And it continued until the 830s. There were mass rebellions against oppressive taxation. Then there was the fifth fitna, the Abbasid Civil War from 865 to 866 that had mass fighting between caliphs, great turmoil and anarchy, and it resulted in a Turkic victory. So around this time, the Hadith was selected of 7,000 out of hundreds of thousands of fragments about some alleged prophet Muhammad that was probably derived from these biographies being written and things that he supposedly said and did. Now this was 
compiled hundreds of kilometers away in Central Asia and the northern areas of the Middle East, nowhere near the Hejaz region of Mecca and Medina. And Al-Tabari also wrote his history accounts of the life of Muhammad. And the Kaaba, we note, has been destroyed and rebuilt many times. It was destroyed and burned in 683 AD. It was catapulted with stones in 692 AD and it was stolen by a group of Muslims called the Karmatians, a Shiite sect in the 930s AD and it was held for ransom for 20 years. Well, Robert Spencer wrote a book called Did Muhammad Exist? And it's very well researched, highly recommended book. And he gives a timeline of things we do know for sure. In 633 AD, there was the Arab invasion of Iraq. Um, in 636 to 37, the Arabs conquered Syria and Palestine in the late 630s. There's a document that says a living prophet invaded Palestine, which I've already quoted. In 639 AD, the Arabs conquered Armenia and Egypt. In the 640s AD, we have Thomas the Presbyter, who mentions the Tayyayi of Mahmud in 634. In 644, we have the Arab conquest of Persia. And in the 640s to the 50s, there was a coin with Muhammad. But it shows a man with a cross on it. 651, Muawiyah, the governor of Syria, calls on the Byzantine Empire to renounce the worship of Christ and worship the God of Abraham. So he doesn't call upon the guy to renounce Christianity, he simply calls upon him to renounce the worship of Christ. That suggests to me that Muawiyah was actually a Aryan Christian that is, a Christian who denies the Trinity and the divinity of Christ. In 654, there was the Arab conquest of Cyprus and Rose, and Muawiyah ruled from 661 to 680. In the 660s and 670s, coins show Muawiyah holding a cross and a crescent. That does not seem like Islam, that sounds like a Unitarian form of Christianity. From the 660s to the 670s, there was an Armenian bishop called Sebius, and he wrote a semi-historical legend about an Arab preacher called Mahmed. And he says that he taught people to only worship the God of Abraham. And he led 12,000 Jews and Arabs to invade Palestine. So it would seem that this Mahmud was a preacher who, with the Jews and Arabs together, invaded Palestine. And again, this is the record of a living prophet doing something like that. In 662 AD, at a bathhouse in Palestine, it shows Muawiyah 
and he's mentioned along with a symbol of a cross. In 674, the Arabs sieged Constantinople, but they failed to uh, conquer it. In 680 AD, it says that an anonymous chronicler says that Muhammad was the leader of the sons of Ishmael, whom God sent against Persia. That sounds as if this there was a character called Muhammad who was being used by God to conquer Persia. And Persians were not Christians, they were Zoroastrians. Then from 680 to 683, we have the Caliphate of Yazid. And these coins depict him with a cross. Then in 685 AD, we have Abdullah ibn Az-Zubair, a rebel ruler of Arabia, Iraq and Iran, and he minted coins praising Muhammad as the Prophet of Allah. In 690 AD, we have John Bar Penkei, a Nestorian Christian, who wrote a book called The Summary History of the World. And in books 14 and 15, he documented Muhammad and Arab brutality. In 691, we have the Dome of the Rock inscription, and it says, Muhammad is the servant of God and his messenger. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was only a messenger of God. And then in 696, the first coins were minted with the Shah Hadar, which says there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Then in the 690s AD, we have Hajjaj bin Yusuf, who was the governor of Iraq, and he collected the Quran, standardized the texts, and burnt its variants and distributed copies to the Islamic provinces. And he added diacritical marks to the Quran to understand the Arab consonants. Now, Muslim tradition claims that it was the Caliph Uthman who did this in the 650s AD, but instead what we find is that this actually happened 40 years later. It would seem then that this Caliph Uthman never existed. The man who did what Uthman is supposed to have done was actually someone called Hajjaj bin Yusuf. And then in the 750s to 760s, Malik ibn Anas compiled the first Hadith collection. And then, but that doesn't exist anymore. Instead, the canonical ones were done about a hundred years later. And ibn Ishaq then collected biographical material and wrote a biography of Muhammad. 130 years after the fact, and that no longer exists. And then from the 830s to the 860s, we have the six major hadith collections are made. The Quran in chapter 4, verse 157, denies the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, that verse is actually absent from the earliest Quranic manuscripts. One of the earliest sources of information on Muhammad comes from the 8th century. 
It comes from the last of the church fathers in Christianity. His name was John of Damascus, and he died in 749 AD. And he lived in Syria, where the Arabs had conquered that country. And so he wrote about these Arab conquerors in a book called The Fount of Knowledge. It's a relatively short book. You can find it online and read it. He doesn't mention the Muslims. He simply talks about the heresy of the Ishmaelites, or Arabs. He says they were a precursor to the Antichrist. He says they were the destitute of Sarah and descendants of Hajar. So he calls them Saracens and Hajarines. He says that these Arabs used to be pagans who worshipped Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the Greek equivalent of the Arab goddess Alat. And he says they were idolaters in the time of Emperor Heraclius. But he says from that time on, they followed a false prophet called Muhammad, who was taught by an Aryan monk. Again, this does not sound like someone inventing a new religion, but simply an heretical Aryan Christian. He said that Jesus was born of Mary, who was the sister of Moses and Aaron, and that these Ishmaelite heretics taught other absurdities. So basically these Arabs were so illiterate that they believed that Jesus was the nephew of Moses and Aaron. And his followers, he said, admitted that there were no miracles performed by Muhammad. And he received uh, this book in his sleep. Now, Muslims claim that Muhammad went into violent fits and shook on the ground and got his revelations. But this is an earlier source, says he received it in his sleep. He says these Ishmaelites vehemently denied Jesus is God or the Son of God. And that they were frequently silenced or embarrassed when arguing with him. He says that Muhammad wrote a book called The Camel of God. It's about a camel that drank a whole river and got so large it couldn't pass through two mountains. Now this chapter of the Quran no longer exists. And he also says that this Muhammad stole the wife of Zayd, his friend. Now, later Muslim tradition claims that Zayd was his adopted son, but in this earlier source of information, they believed Zayd was his friend. You might say, well, maybe John of Damascus made that up to slander these Arabs, but if he was going to slander them, he would surely have mentioned Muhammad stealing the wife of his adopted son, because that seems even more morally reprehensible than stealing it off his friend. But he doesn't say that. He says they venerate a black stone in the Kaaba, but he doesn't mention Mecca in any of this. He calls the writings of Muhammad stupid and ridiculous. So the conclusions on St. John of Damascus is, well, he lived a hundred years before the Quran was properly completed. 
and by the 8th century, a legend of some man called Muhammad was being developed, but it would still undergo much more change and embellishment. It was a century before any extant biographies of Muhammad existed, and the words Muslim and Quran are not used in his writings. I'll now look at some other sources we have from the 7th century. We have John Moschus in his Pratum Spirituale, or Spiritual Meadow. And he was writing about the godless Saracens who entered the holy city of Christ our Lord, Jerusalem. And Sophonius, the patriarch of Jerusalem, in 637 AD, refers to the Saracens and their, quote, godless audacity, and the godless Saracens. He makes no mention of their god, their prophet, or their holy book. So all this evidence points to an Arab empire, not a Muslim empire. And it would appear it was an Arab empire that had Aryan heretic Christians or godless violent men whose real god was just money and materialism and power. But is there evidence that Islam existed earlier? Well, there is the Birmingham Folio, which is a portion of the Quran that dates to 568 to 645 AD, and it predates the Quran. But this actually would prove, or it was written in very early times. But the problem with that is that if it predates Muhammad, then it's plagiarised from other sources. On the other hand, it's not a complete Quran, it's just fragments of chapters 18 to 20. And it contradicts the standard Quran that Muslims have. And so there's no mention uh, of Muhammad in there. The man, Muhammad, the book, the Quran, and the place, Mecca, are debunked. They were all post-facto creations to bolster the Arab empire. And then there is the Tongdian, an ancient Chinese source that was written in eight. 101 AD on the Abbasid Empire and it says during the Yonghui period which was 650 to 656 AD it says the Arabs sent an embassy to the Chinese court and they said that their country was west of Persia that they had been started by a Persian who was inspired by a spirit to forge weapons and kill masses of people. It claims they raised up Persian kings who then extinguished both Persia and Byzantium by an army of Arabs, 420,000 Arabs, by the time their state was 34 years old. So the Arab empire of the time was claiming they were started by a Persian prophet who forged weapons, overthrew the kings of Persia, 
and the Byzantine Empire and conquered them. The Arab conquest of Persia is a very interesting one. The Persians often relied on the Arabs as allies or mercenaries and they saw the Arabs as a buffer state against the Roman or Byzantine Empire. And even Herodotus mentions how the Persians hired Arabs to fight for them centuries earlier. In the 7th century AD, the Persians both despised and underestimated the Arabs. And the Arabs defeated the Persians with smaller armies, but with deception and clever tactics. The Ghassanid kingdom, an Arab kingdom, and the Lakhmids were client states of Persia. The Ghassanids were Christians, and the Lakhmids wanted to unite all Arabs into one nation. And then we have some very interesting information. We have Jiu Tang Shu, a Chinese source, written in 945 AD. And it says, during the Dayi year of the Sui dynasty, now the Sui dynasty was from 581 to 618 AD. And this says that a man in Persia who herded camels on Mount Kufan, a city-state, he was met one day by a lion man. And the lion man told him, there were three caves on Mount Kufan where a large armory was stored full of weapons and there was also a black stone with a text on it. And the lion man told him, you will be king if you do what the writing on the black stone tells you to do. Well, a couple of decades earlier we have Al-Tabari, the Arab writer, who says that when Nasrid al-Numan feared Khosru II, that was the Persian king, Khosru ruled from 590 to 628 AD, which is around the time of Muhammad, when Muhammad supposedly lived. And he feared Khosru, the Persian king, so he deposited weapons with Ibn Kabisar of the Barka people. Now, interestingly, Abu Bakr is supposed to be the founder of the Rashidun Caliphate from 632 to 661 AD. But getting back to Tabari says, Ibn Kabusar of the Barka uh, deposited these weapons to, in a cave to protect them. And Khosru ordered Ibn Kabusar as governor of Hira. Now, Hira is the name of the cave Muhammad supposedly got his revelations from, but he ordered Ibn Kabisar as governor of Hira to get the armory, but he refused and he soon led his people in a war against Persia. And he had 400 to 800 coats of armor. So what we find from the earliest sources is evidence of this proto-Islamic group being started by a rebel in Persia who was a, a prophet who rose up and led the Arabs in a violent war in which they crippled and defeated the Persian Empire. 
despite being heavily outnumbered. And all the evidence points to these Arabs as being Christians who denied the Trinity and Divinity of Christ. The Hadith claims that Muhammad, shortly before his death, wrote letters to the emperors of Persia, Byzantium and Ethiopia, inviting them to become Muslims. So we're told that he wrote a, a letter to Emperor Heraclius, the Byzantine emperor, who ruled from 610 to 641 AD. But there is not a shred of evidence that Heraclius ever heard of anyone called Muhammad or received any letter from him. The Hadith, however, claims that he wanted to become a Muslim and after having one conversation with one Abu Sufyan, Muhammad's cousin. So he then feared that the circumcised people would conquer his nation, so he went out and massacred all the Jews. And this simply doesn't match up with any of the historical records. Another reason why we can't trust the Islamic traditions and records. So what can we then conclude about the Islamic primary sources. We have the Hadith, written between 800 to 1000 AD. 98% of it was destroyed and a tiny selective remnant was declared authentic. Then we have the Birmingham manuscript, which differs from later versions of the Quran, and it dates to the 7th century. The earliest versions of the Quran have thousands of variants that are written, and it's written in the Kufic Arabic script, which dates to the 9th century AD, not the 7th century. Then we have the biographies of Muhammad. The earliest one, written in the 700s, doesn't exist. The other ones were written about 200 years later, and they contradict each other a lot. Um, and then we have the Constitution of Medina, which was supposedly written in 622 to 624 AD on Muhammad's arrival in Medina. The problem is no copy of this document exists. Its earliest known existence comes from being quoted by Ibn Hisham in the early 800s, which he claimed was copied off Ibn Ishaq, whom he discredits as unreliable. So there really isn't much information. Then we have the Quran itself. But the Quran only mentions Muhammad four times. And the word Muhammad simply means the praised one. But it doesn't actually tell us anything about who Muhammad actually was. In the Quran, Moses is mentioned 136 times. Abraham is mentioned 79 times. Even Pharaoh is mentioned 74 times. And Jesus, or Isa, is mentioned 187 times, or referred to. Muhammad, on the other hand, is, has just four mentions, and we 
point out the word Muhammad is not a name, it's a title. It just means the praiseworthy one. So I'm going to read these verses from the Quran. Quran chapter 3 verse 144 says, And the praiseworthy one is no more than a messenger. Muslims translate it to mean, And Muhammad is no more than a messenger. Why would they say that if nobody was claiming Muhammad was more than a messenger? These anti-Trinitarian Christian Arabs were concerned with Jesus being declared more than a messenger and they were saying Jesus is no more than a messenger. So it is most likely that Muhammad was actually a title for Jesus in which it's saying that the praiseworthy one, Jesus, is no more than a messenger. The Quran chapter 33 verse 40 says, The praiseworthy one is not the father of any of your men, but he is the messenger of Allah and the last of the prophets. Chapter 47 verse 2 says, And believe in that which was sent down to the praiseworthy one. Chapter 48 verse 29 the praiseworthy one is the messenger of Allah. Now this tells us absolutely nothing about some supposed individual called Muhammad. If the original Muslims were Unitarian or Aryan Christian Arabs, then the Muhammad or the blessed praiseworthy one is most likely a title for Jesus. If, on the other hand, Muhammad was really a real individual and a prophet, then surely he would be mentioned more than Abraham or Jesus or Pharaoh or Moses in the Quran. And the four verses that talk about the Blessed One or the Praiseworthy One cannot be used by Muslims as evidence that Muhammad existed in the 7th century because all the biographical information on Muhammad comes from sources written 130 to 300 years after his alleged existence. The Quran in chapter 29 verses 50 to 51 says that there were no miracles that Muhammad did except the Quran. It says why are not signs sent down to him from the Lord? Say, the signs are only with Allah, and I am only a plain warner. Is it not sufficient for them that we have sent down to you the book which is recited to them? Verily, herein is mercy and a reminder for a people who believe. So the Quran is saying that the only miracle they have gotten is the Quran. And the Quran in chapter 17 verse 59 says that miracles had stopped. It says nothing stops us from sending the proofs but that the people of old denied them and we sent the she-camel to Tamud as a clear sign. But they did her wrong and we sent not the signs except to warn and to make them afraid of destruction. And the Quran in chapter 13 verse 7 says the disbelievers say, why is not a sign sent down to him from his Lord? You are only a warner and to every people there is a guide. 
So this verse in the Quran is saying that there were no miracles being performed by Muhammad, at least the way they interpret the Quran. If this is the case, then how reliable is the Hadith? Well, there are masses of contradictions in the details of Muhammad's life. How many wives did he have? Some sources say nine, some say 23, some say 11. How many children did he have? Some sources say he had one child, others say two, others say 12 children. One source says eight boys. How old was he when he died? Muslim tradition says 62, but some sources say 60, others say 65. There's also masses of absurdities in the Hadith. Bukhari, volume 4, numbers 830 to 832, claims that Muhammad chopped the moon in half. Now, there is a verse in the Quran that makes mention of the moon being split asunder, but that's not got nothing to do with this. That's an apocalyptic description. And given that the Quran says Muhammad did not pro uh, provide any miracles, then we can ha dismiss this as rubbish. Bukhari, volume uh, 2, number 41, and volume 4, number 2, sorry, volume 4, number 783, claim that Muhammad comforted palm trees that cried, that a palm tree was sobbing and Muhammad went over and hugged it and comforted it and it stopped crying. We know that palm trees don't cry. They would have to have eyelids and tear ducts and vocal cords to do that. They don't have that. So we have to conclude that it's unreliable. It also claims in Bukhari volume 4 number 543 that Adam was 60 cubits tall. That's 90 feet or 27 meters tall. If he was so big, his sheer weight would make his whole body collapse on itself. And he, it also claimed all these ridiculous rules that you could not face Mecca while urinating or defecating. Bukhari volume 1 numbers 146 to 151. Now, it, that makes sense if you believe that the earth is flat, but on a round earth it doesn't make sense. So it leads us to the problem with believing anything written in the Hadith with any certainty. See, even if the Hadith is attributed to people like Abu Huraira or Aisha, we can't even be certain that this is accurate. It could have been fabricated by someone with a dishonest agenda. And when it comes to 200 years after the fact, when hundreds of thousands of so-called unauthentic hadiths were in circulation, it means it's virtually impossible for anyone, even back then, to know what was authentic and what wasn't. So every source for that Muslims give us for Islam is too late and too distant from Mecca. 
It means that nothing in the hadith can be trusted, even the claim that they were only collecting the authentic, trustworthy hadiths, since they regarded the above hadiths as authentic. A good book to read is by Christoph Luxenberg, called The Syro-Aramaic Reading of the Quran. It was published in the year 2000. It was translated into English in 2007. And it shows that Syriac was a widely used language in the Middle East in the 7th century. The Quran is rooted in Syriac language. There was no trace of Arabic literature until about two centuries after Muhammad. And parts of the Quran are derived from pre-existing Christian Aramaic texts. For example, the word for huris, or sex slaves, large-breasted women in paradise in Islam, in Aramaic it actually means white raisins. There was also Gunter Luling, a German Protestant theologian and scholar, and he believed that the Koran, chapter 96, is actually a Christian hymn that was um, mistranslated into Arabic. The early Muslims, he believed, were actually just anti-Trinitarian Arab Christians whose religion evolved into an Arab-centric religion. And so Gunter Luling found that most of the, much of the Quran matches Christian hymns written in Aramaic that predated the Quran. And it, it's actually just a plagiarism and a conglomeration of Aramaic Christian lectionaries, poems and sermon notes uh, that the Quran originally was written in. The Arabs, who didn't know Aramaic, changed, perverted or distorted its original meanings. The diacritical marks changed their meanings, but the Quran was homilies, lectionaries and hymns about Jesus Christ. The Quran was not standardised until about 800 years after Muhammad's alleged existence. About 20% of the Quran makes no sense to the scholars. But the Christoph Luxemburg Quran makes these meanings clear. The Caliph Abdel Malik and his Iraqi governor Hajjaj bin Yusuf formulated a theology out of monotheist Christian beliefs. They believed that God only had a divine nature, not a human nature. So they denied the divinity of Christ. And this was popular in the Arab Petraea region at the time. Luxembourg shows that Muhammad is not a name, it's just a title. It means the praised one and it refers to Jesus since these ancient Arabs wanted to say that he was only a messenger. So it's saying the Shahadah is simply saying, praised be the servant of Allah, not Muhammad is the servant of Allah, which is the inscription on the Dome of the Rock. And the Quran in chapter 17, verse, sorry, in chapter 72, verses 18 to 20, it's most likely talking about Jesus. It says, And the mosques are for God alone, so invoke not anyone else with God. And when the slave of God stood up invoking him in prayer, 
they just made round him a dense crowd as if sticking one over the other. Say, I invoke only my Lord alone, and I associate none as partners with him. The problem with the Quran is that most Muslim uh, translations and editions are propaganda where they have filled up lots of words in brackets that are not in the text to distort its meaning. But if you get the Quran and only read its writing alone, it gives a very different message. A good translation of the Quran is the Penguin Classics one done by the Christian Arab N.J. Dawood. Um, another good book is Karl Heinz Olig, his 2010 book, The Hidden Origins of Islam. And in the Quran, as just one example, in chapter 98, verse 6, the Hafs Quran says that hell is filled with the worst creatures, Bariyati. But the Wash Quran says hell is filled with the worst of the innocent people, the Arabic Barati. Now, this is a clear contradiction, and contrary to the claim that Muslims have only one Quran, there's over 36 Arabic Qurans in existence. Some are more popular than others, but each of these copies is claiming to be the one true Quran. So now I'm going to have a look at what the scholars have to say. In Mervyn Bendel's 2012 article, the revisionist case that Muhammad did not exist from the Quadrant Online, 1st of July 2012, it lists um, different scholars who believed Muhammad did not exist, many in the 19th and 20th centuries. There was Ibn Warraq in his 2000 book, The Quest for the Historical Muhammad. Uh, most of the scholarly work has to be written under pseudonyms because uh, people questioning Muhammad's existence have been killed or persecuted. There's no original source material on Islam in the 7th century. It all came 130 to 300 years later, based on oral traditions, many of which contradicted each other and were patently absurd. John Wansbro, in his 1977 book, Quranic Studies, Sources and Methods of Scriptural Interpretation, he says that Islam began as a Judeo-Christian sect as the Arab Empire grew, it slowly evolved into an Arabian religion with an Arab prophet of special status, namely the seal of the prophets, and it took centuries to create and develop this mythical figure. Cronin and Cook's 1977 book, Hajarism, The Making of the Islamic World. They point out there's no hard evidence for the Quran in any form before the last decade of the 7th century. There's evidence in the mid-8th century. The Arab conquests were a rebellion against the Persian and Byzantine empires as they fell into chaos, where a coalition of Jews and Arabs referred to as the Hajarines and Saracens, being named after Hajar and Sarah, the coalition dissolved in the 8th century and it took on an exclusive Arab identity. 
And I did mention before Luxembourg in his 2000 book, The Syro-Aramaic Reading of the Quran, he says that Islam emerged from Syrian Christian evangelism of the Arabs using prayers and literature. Many of the incomprehensible words in the Quran originate from Aramaic. Then there is Gerd Pouin in his 1972. He said that he went through masses of Quranic and non-Quranic fragments and he found some texts dating to 660 AD yet they differed greatly from modern Arabic versions. And he concluded that the proto-Islamic movement must have been in constant change in the first two centuries. And as Muslims encountered sophisticated civilizations, Egyptians, Persians, Syrians, Byzantines, they forged their own literature, their own messianic prophetic figure, and their own holy shrines, namely the Hijaz region of Mecca and Medina. The earliest account of Muhammad, Ibn Ishaq, who died in 768 AD, is not extant, but only known through the 9th century biographer, Ibn Hisham, who says that he heavily edited and censored Ibn Ishaq's er earlier version and got rid of, quote, things which it is disgraceful and matters which would distress certain people, end quote. So this means that both versions are unreliable as sources. And a Christian account of 635 AD, Conquest of Jerusalem, says the godless Saracens who give themselves up to prostitution, massacre, and lead into captivity the sons of men. And it makes no mention of Muhammad, Islam, Muslims, or the Quran. <clears throat> well, on that note, it appears that Muhammad's whole life is mythologically written. It's about a man who's called to be a prophet. He's terrified and reluctant at first, but he comes around to it. He preaches to his own in Mecca. His own do not receive him. He's persecuted. He flees to Medina. Then he is defeated by the Meccans, but then he comes back again and defeats them, and then he rides triumphantly into Mecca, lives happily ever after. Everything about him is too good to be true. He has the sexual power of 40 men. He's merciful and vengeful. He chops the moon in half. He comforts sobbing palm trees. He makes the world a better place. All his enemies are either knaves or fools. They're either crazy, evil or stupid. And so <clears throat> his empire emerged one to two centuries into an Arab imperialist empire. Everything about his religion is designed to benefit an Arab empire. We're told that Muhammad was this great, wonderful man. He had a black friend called Bilal and a Persian friend called Sal Salman. Muhammad in the Hadith said, Love the Arabs, because I am an Arab. The Quran was revealed in Arabic, and Arabic is the language of paradise. So they brought in brutal draconian punishments to terrorise and intimidate the population. So it's built to benefit an Arab empire. 
They brought in unjust taxes and discrimination against minorities. They brought in the death penalty for blaspheming their non-existent God and prophet. If you were to have an Arab empire, you'd also want to encourage every able-bodied man to fight in a jihad for a cause. They would have polygamy to take women off other men that they'd conquered and to send the surplus men to die in a jihad with the promise that they'll get 72 women in the afterlife. <clears throat> and such an empire would want to block women from any form of political power. Why? Well, women are less competitive, more relational, more tolerant of diversity. So, in such an empire, you'd create a religion like Islam to force outward group obedience. So things like prayer five times a day, forcing men and women to behave, dress, act, eat and wash in a certain way. What this does is it forces mass compliance and then it forces persecution and discrimination and marginalisation of minorities and non-conformists. But it also creates a small-minded, narrow-minded, stifling society that never advances and goes anywhere. <clears throat> and in such an empire, you would expect there to be a lot of violence and infighting in such a place. Well, we looked at those fitness, those civil wars and apocalypses they had. So there'd be much chaos and there'd be a constantly changing narrative and you'd have a book like the Koran being constantly abrogated. And there are verses in the Koran that talk about it being abrogated. And such an Arab empire would derive inspiration from heroes of the past like Alexander the Great. And why him? Well, he was the man who conquered all the land that made up the Byzantine Empire and the Persian Empire. So he'd be a hero to them. And in the Koran, he's called Dal Qanain. So in closing, I'm going to look at one last scholar in Europe, Odon Lafontaine. And he wrote a book called The Great Secret of Islam. In his website, thegreatsecretofislam.com, he's going to provide an English version of his book for free. And he points out that the Koran is a chaotic mess and mixture of jumbled together Christian homilies, preachers' sermon preparation notes, hymns, legends, commentaries, etc. And there's so many different styles of speaking. He also says there's archaeological evidence of the Quraysh tribe that lived in Syria. Muhammad was supposed to have been a member of the Quraysh tribe down in the Hejaz region of Mecca. But no, this tribe was actually way up in Syria, far north. He says these proto-Muslims were actually a messianic Jewish group, that is Jews who accept Christianity, but were Unitarian or Aryans who denied the divinity of Christ. So it was a group of Arab Unitarian Christians and Jewish Unitarian Christians who united together, 
conquered Jerusalem because they believed Jesus was going to return in the 630s AD. So, and since Jesus did not return to Jerusalem in the 630s AD, it was a failed apocalypse that led Arab leaders to assume that they had inherited Jesus' divine authority. And these leaders became the caliphs without having to establish a connection with the past. And they created a new messianic power that was divorced from their original Jewish Christian origins. <clears throat> and so he says, when you read the Quran, ignore the explanatory footnotes and brackets and other commentary, just read the text itself. In chapter 4, verse 153 to 157, it talks about the people of the book. It refers to the Jews, and it condemns them for not observing the Sabbath. Now, that's something Muslims do not practice, is the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath is Saturday. The Muslims worship on a Friday. The Quran refers to the good community of the people of the book that they act righteously among the Jews, chapter 3, verse 113, and chapter 5, verse 66. It says there was a small number of them who were truly practicing the Torah, chapter 5, verse 13, who recognized Jesus as the Messiah, chapter 2, verse 101, and chapter 4, verse 159, and who opposed Christians and rabbinical Jews, chapter 2, verse 105. And it says these people regarded the Torah and Gospel as unaltered text. Chapter 2, verse 75 to 79, and chapter 5, verse 59. And that they followed the true faith, Quran chapter 3, verse 110, and believed in the last days, verse 113, and were humble towards God, verse 199. And the Quran chapter 2, verse 125 to 127, talks about an alliance between Abraham and Ishmael to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And the Quran talks about the Nazarenes who are praised as people of the book with no idolatrous associations. The Quran chapter 3, verse 65 to 67, chapter 5, verse 51 and 69, and chapter 22, verse 17. It says these people are called those who are closest to the believers. The Quran chapter 5 verse 82. It says those who say we are Nazarenes. This verse is often mistranslated as those who say we are Christians. But it's a mistranslation. The word is Nazarenes. Then in the Quran chapter 50. Sorry, chapter 5, verse 51 says, The Nazarenes became their enemies. And it said, O believers, do not take the Jews and Nazarenes as your allies, for they are allies of one another. The hypothesis he makes is that the Arabs and Nazarenes conquered Jerusalem under an expectation that Jesus would return in the 630s. And Islam emerged as a failed apocalypse which was independent of Judaism, Christianity and Quranic Nazareanism. And it happened under Abdel Malik's Caliphate from the 640s to 705 AD.
So that, my friends, is the true origins of Islam. Their prophet most likely never existed. And if he did exist, he was based on someone that had almost nothing to do with the traditional popular view of who Muhammad was. He was possibly a Persian. Um, their holy shrine, their city of Mecca, was never a trade route. That modern city of Mecca is being dug up and all construction going on all over the place. And yet there's not a shred of archaeological evidence found for Islam's origins there. And their book, the Quran, is just a conglomeration of Aramaic Christian writings jumbled together and mistranslated and edited by Muslims centuries after the fact. Thank you for listening. God bless.